Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, with a message titled, Workplace Satisfaction. So turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Most of us have to work. It's just not a choice. Some time ago, a bumper sticker that was very popular on cars said, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. See, most of us can't quit our jobs. Necessity forces us on. There are debts, there are ongoing expenses of living, there are children, and there are other factors. We have to work. Attitudes about work vary greatly. Some people just love their jobs. Even after they've made enough to retire, they insist on carrying on. They tell us that their work gives meaning to their lives. But some people hate their jobs. See, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why gambling is so attractive is because many see it as the only possible escape from the prison that is their job. But from a Christian perspective, work is a gift of God. The Bible calls what God did in creating the world work. Genesis 2 verse 3 calls it the work of creating. Then a little later in the chapter, in verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Work really was intended as an imitation of God. Human beings created in God's image are also in the business of creating something. We don't create out of nothing the way that God did. Our work is not as wonderful and as magnificent as is God's. But we do create something. Our jobs create. And this is an imitation of God. Perhaps you create a service. Perhaps you create an actual commodity. Perhaps you create ideas, but what your job is, is intended as imitation of your creator. But after sin entered the world, the meaning and nature of work changed radically. Work went from being an imitation of God to being a curse. Adam went from the joy of caring for the Garden of Eden to the tedium of trying to raise crops on a cursed soil, and that's drudgery. That's why so many of us see work as tedium, as a trap, and as a burden of life. Work is painful toil because of the entrance of sin, not because of work itself. But we often don't understand that. We envy the rich because, as we see it, they don't have to work, and we do. Let's see if we can articulate a Christian view of work. Ephesians 6, 5-9 is our text. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. There is no partiality with him. Now, if you've never read that text before, or you're new to the Bible, you might be shocked. This is a text which tells slaves to obey their masters. And at first glance, you might say, this is not about workplace satisfaction. This is a text that justifies slavery. Well, let me try just for a few minutes to explain that it really is about workplace satisfaction and does not justify slavery even in the least. It's been estimated that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in Paul's day, and that was at least one-third of the Roman world. People became slaves in a number of ways. Some were prisoners of war. 
Some could not pay debts and were then sold into slavery. Others, like the poor, saw slavery as their only hope, and so they chose to become slaves out of necessity. It's also true that Christianity grew among slaves. You know, many churches had most of their members as slaves, and that was the reality of their lives. A lot of pagans mocked Christianity as being a religion of slaves. Now, this text is addressed to slaves because that's who would read this letter. See, some of you are aware of the fact that large American slave owners before the Civil War used this very text to justify slavery. God has commanded slavery, they said. And yet others took up the same Bible and argued the very nature of God and the nature of Christian love makes slavery an abomination. Eventually, it was Christians who led in the struggle to abolish slavery for all time. That was true especially in the U.S. and in Great Britain. So why doesn't the New Testament thoroughly condemn slavery? Why does it tell slaves to obey their masters? I think we can offer up three reasons for that. Number one, if the apostle had attacked slavery, Christianity would have been labeled as subversive. Riots would have ensued. You see, Christianity was not in a place where it could do anything about slavery. They had no political power. If the apostle had preached against slavery, Christianity would have become a political movement and the preaching of the cross and the need for personal salvation would never have been heard. But Paul does in 1 Timothy 1 verse 10 call slave traitors, lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful, and irreligious. So the New Testament writers did not think that slavery was a good idea. But while the New Testament waits for the end of slavery, it also doesn't lead a slave revolt, for if it had, the good news of Jesus would have failed to have been heard. Number two, at the time of the New Testament, the Roman government had put strong laws into effect condemning cruelty to slaves. Yeah, it's true that some masters were cruel, but others were not. And it's true that some slaves were treated shamefully, but others were not. In fact, being a slave in the Roman world did not necessarily indicate your social status. Some slaves were philosophers and highly respected teachers. Some were business people who were even CEOs in their master's estate. Some had become wealthy, wealthier than free men. Some people voluntarily became slaves so they could obtain Roman citizenship. Sometimes you could not tell a slave from his master. Now, how different that is than the American slave experience, which was one of the most notorious injustices ever perpetrated on a people group. And so, you see, the New Testament could not speak as one voice to the institution of slavery because the condition of slavery varied greatly, especially from that kind of slavery that we're familiar with in the American experience. Number three, the radical nature of Christian fellowship spelled out in the New Testament would eventually be the death knell of slavery. Paul, in the small book of Philemon, commands a slave owner, a man named Philemon, to treat a runaway slave named Onesimus as a brother, as his equal in the Lord. And church history tells us that this slave, Onesimus, became one of the bishops of the ancient church. The church opened the door for the radical equality of all people. It transformed Roman slavery so that it was destined to fail. See, the good news is this. If the Bible's teaching can so transform slavery that it was destined to fail, think of what it can do to your workplace. 
You might say, well, my workplace is like slavery, but God can transform that. Well, how? By carrying out the commands of this text. So let's begin with God's instructions to employees. If you hold down a job where you're accountable to a firm or a boss or an employer, how should you act? Well, there are five things that you can do to make your workplace a place of great satisfaction. First, fully carry out your job assignment. See, verse 5a says, bond servants obey your earthly masters. See, a bond servant is someone who serves in bondage. And the Greek text literally reads, bond servants obey your masters according to the flesh. You know, we're to understand that they're not our masters forever. They are according to the flesh. They're not going to be around forever. It's a short-term assignment and not an eternal one. And secondly, I want you to notice that by calling them masters according to the flesh, that puts limits around our obedience to them. Jesus is our eternal master, and his call on our lives is greater than the call of our earthly masters. And someone has said, well, what if I have a boss who wants me to do something that's unethical or violates my conscience? Well, the answer is just say no. I recently heard a radio program where secretaries called in telling of how their bosses had asked them to lie. So if you have a boss that asks you to lie or to cheat or to steal from customers, your answer has to be no. You and I have a boss in heaven who has authority over our earthly boss. Your earthly boss will give an account before the great boss in heaven, even if he doesn't know it. But, and this is key, it is our duty to fully carry out our job assignment. We should let our boss know that it is our intention to do our job as best as we know how. He or she can count on us. Second, have an attitude of great care in your work. Verse 5b says, with fear and trembling. Now, the word fear troubles some people, but Paul's not saying that we should operate out of a motivation of fear for our employers. He's something else in mind. I want you to imagine a great artist doing some final touches on a great work of art. He takes great care because he's afraid that he might spoil the work. He's working on a masterpiece. He works with fear and trembling in the same way. We should have an attitude of great care around what we do. Momentum is picking up as friends from across the country sign up for the 2022 Israel Experience. Join us from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, very special musical guests, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, David walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace. Sail the Sea of Galilee and join in communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last Israel experience said, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful. The trip of a lifetime. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available online and to ensure an intimate experience, numbers are limited. So register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. There are two kinds of employees. There's the employee who says, I'll do what I'm asked to do for eight hours a day, and that's it. It's not in my contract to do, and then you fill in the blank, and they simply refuse. They know their rights, 
and they're going to let everyone know that no one's going to take advantage of them. Then there's the employee who takes great pride in his or her work. He or she works as if it were his or her own company. The boss always knows, you know, if I let Frank do it, it's going to be done very well. I want you to notice the phrase with a sincere heart. It can also be taken to mean singleness of heart, not divided loyalty, not like a a dog trying to chase two rabbits at the same time, not distracted, focused, diligent, careful. Some employees carry out a number of assignments unrelated to their job at work. They spend untold hours just chatting with fellow employees on company time. They take off, you know, another 20 extra minutes every day at lunch or coffee breaks and add that up week after week and add this up over a number of employees who are all doing the same thing. And the net result is a loss of productivity to a company that's staggering. It's called theft. Christians, hear me. We must be part of the solution to the labor problems, not a part of the problem. Third, realize that your work is full-time Christian ministry. Again, look at verses 5c to 6 with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. You know, it's been said that almost nothing elevated the nature of work more than the text we've just read. And perhaps nothing is more tragic than the failure to understand this text. You know, traditionally, people have thought that pastors and missionaries and, you know, Bible college and seminary instructors were in full-time Christian work and others just had a job. And every once in a while, I'll hear someone saying to me that they sure wish they had a chance to be in Christian work. So let me surprise you. All of you should be in full-time Christian work. That's God's call on your life. The late John Stott once said, it is possible for a housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for the doctors to treat patients and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if, in each case, they were serving Christ. I once heard a speaker, Daryl Miller, say that there was a time when a Christian worker making a chair would care for the bottom of the chair just as well as the top. And someone might ask him why he did that. After all, no one saw the bottom and the worker would respond, God sees. You see, he's not making the chair for his boss or even for the customer. He was making it ultimately for the glory of Jesus. All his creative work was bringing glory to Jesus. See, I'm in full-time Christian work. You already knew that. I want you to be in it too. Understand that you're serving Christ in your job. As soon as you believe that, you'll be in full-time Christian work. You're not just a bus driver. You're driving your bus in honor of Jesus, your passenger. You're not just a mechanic. You're fixing cars for Jesus. You're not just a teacher. You're teaching children for Jesus. And once you grasp that, it's going to transform your work. Your work, whatever you do, is a holy calling. It is the means whereby you serve Christ. Maybe you never thought of that. Maybe you tried to get away with as little as you can because you don't like your boss and you didn't want to be put so much effort in or the labor climate in your work is just tense all the time. I mean, you didn't know this work that you do was not for your company. It was for your ultimate boss, Christ your Lord. But you might respond, you know, the only one that will get any benefit from that kind of an attitude is my employer. The company will succeed, but my boss won't even notice and he won't even care. So here's a fourth point. 
Count on Jesus observing and rewarding your work. Look again at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Perhaps you've been able to serve a customer well. Perhaps you've taught a student to see the world in a way that will bring her great benefit. Perhaps you've shared the fullness of your joy in Christ with someone at work. Jesus will reward you. That's your motivation. Now then, God has instruction for employers as well. Verse 9 says, Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You'll notice the word to employers is only one verse, and you might ask, why is that so? But when you look closely at the verse, you'll see that it begins with the words, in the same way. In other words, all the words that were said to employees, they're said to you as well. How so? Well, if you're an employer, be known as someone whom people want to work for. The golden rule is a rule that was given by Jesus. He said, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And verse 9 tells masters to treat their slaves in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, let's go back to verse 7, rendering service as unto the Lord. Now, let me ask Christian employers a question. What if Jesus were working for you? Would you treat him the same way that you now treat your employees? Would you be as demanding or would you be respectful? Well, someone would say, look, I need to hold my employees accountable. Of course you do. That's a part of leadership. And sometimes I know it's hard. Sometimes you have to make decisions that might be misunderstood. But there's a great deal of difference between leadership and dictatorship. It was said of Alexander the Great that his men always knew that there was a very long day's march over burning sands. One thing they knew, that Alexander marched with them. If they were thirsty, they knew that he had thirsted too. For when one day someone brought a cup of cold water to him, he put it aside, thirsty as he was, and he said, give it to that sick soldier. His troop marched thousands of miles, not because they feared him, but because they loved him. Do your employees love you? Ask yourself that question. Do you love your employees? Of course, you've got to hold them accountable. Of course, there are industry standards that you have to strive to meet. But God has given you people created in God's image to pour your life into. If you want them to give you their all, you've got to begin by giving them your all. The leader sets the work environment. So let me suggest two ways in which you can be known as a great boss. Number one, compensate your workers fairly. I want all Christian employers to hear the words of James 5 verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Christian employers should be known for paying fair wages. We should not be the ones who are known as cheap and harsh. It's God's will that you pay at the very least, according to industry standards, probably more. See, several years ago, I had a conversation with a Christian man whom I still admire and respect greatly. He was very wealthy, and he had a man to do yard work around his house. Now, this was a man who had destroyed his life by alcohol and other things, but then he'd given his life to Christ. Christ began a new work in that man's life, but unfortunately, the alcohol had taken away much of his health. And my friend offered this man a job because he had compassion on him, but my friend had gotten busy. He'd allowed several months to pass before he had paid his yard worker. The yard worker came to me, and I I went to my wealthy friend, and my friend said, look, it's not that big of a deal. 
it was only, I don't know what it was, five, six hundred bucks that he owed the yard worker, and that as soon as he would, he just cut him a check. And I had to tell my friend that that five hundred bucks is what withheld milk from his table. He needed the 500 to buy food and to pay rent. For my wealthy friend, yeah, 500 was nothing, but for that man, it was everything. And number two, treat workers as if they were your partners. See, all of us have roles to play in life, but the Christian faith transforms every role that we play. If you have Christian employees, be especially gracious to them, for they are in full-time Christian ministry together with you. So let me ask you this. Do you know your employees at all? When are their birthdays? When are their spouses' birthdays? Do they have children? How many do they have? How old are they? What are the struggles that they have in their lives? How often have you spent praying for them? Do you do it every single day? Because if you're not, you're clearly not treating them as you would if Christ were working for you. See, whether an employer or an employee respond to your holy calling. Know that our jobs are not simply our jobs. They are the ministry that Christ has entrusted to us. Whether we are an employee or an employer, there is a ministry that Christ has put upon us, and we need to bring him glory in all the work that we do. Let's give thanks to God for this opportunity to serve him. Thanks, John. Uh, Let me ask you this. How do you think we should make a choice to stay or to move on with our jobs? It's, you know, it's a difficult one that I've toiled over a number of times in my life, and, and sometimes I still wonder. Yeah, I know, because we have that opportunity in our culture, and, and we need to be thankful for it, because uh, when opportunities come, we should consider it. You know, I always say that when we uh, do that, we need to, you know, put together a number of different factors. I mean, obviously, um, you know, satisfaction, or if it's a very abusive work environment, you know, you may want to leave that if God gives you an opportunity. Um, but there are also, uh, you know, the, the use of our gifts, um, also the opportunity to be a witness for Christ. You know, all these kind of things are a part of our consideration as we move on. I don't think there's a right and wrong answer. It's not as if God says, now is the time to move or now not. I mean, yeah, I guess he can say that, but under most circumstances, he doesn't. We simply use our wisdom and then we move on to the glory of God or we stay to the glory of God, always doing everything that we do to the glory of God. I think that's the answer. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, Volume 3, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we're encouraging you to request Dr. John's series, The Time of Your Life, as our free gift to you. As you listen and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time we're given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. Studying the Bible makes a difference. One listener wrote, My prayer for Back to the Bible Canada, God willing and God permitting, is to concentrate all efforts to affirm believers and to speak to the young generation the times we are living in demand it. As always, we're so grateful for your gifts that enable trustworthy Bible teaching to be shared day after day in your community across Canada and around the world. You sustain this ministry. To request the time of your life or make a gift to support Bible teaching, call us at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.